Sports fans, we are back with another sideline sportscast. As always, Brian and I are glad you guys tuned in with us. This week, we got a couple of uh, Wilt Chamberlain records that go down. The uh, Madison Bumgarner throws a no-hitter that doesn't count. Baseball has a clean bill of health. Atlanta may be looking to move on from Julio, and we wrap things up with our final two picks in our on-the-clock segment. But as always, let's start out with what we're drinking. Ryan, what do we got tonight? Yeah, so uh, I let you uh, kind of make the selections tonight. We've been doing a little bit more of the, uh, um, you know, my my taste in beer, the uh, non-IPA variety. So we uh, went with an IPA tonight. We're doing the Terrapin High and Hazy IPA out of Athens, Georgia. So let's crack it open and uh, see what we think. So this comes from one of my personal favorite breweries. I'm, I'm a big fan of Terrapin. My favorite beer comes from them, which is another IPA. So let's give this a taste. Woo. Oh, yeah. I mean, you smell it as soon as you open the can, the hops coming out of that thing. So super hoppy. Um, but, you know, good flavor. You know, I could drink, I'm not a huge um, IPA drinker, but this is probably one of the few that I would order um, give, given, the, given the opportunity. Yeah, those, um, oh man, the, um, the grapefruit really hits you right up front there. It kind of takes the the bite out of the the hoppiness out of it. Um, very tropical. Very. Let's say it's a it's a thicker beer, but it is certainly super mangoey. Um, not a huge or uh, sorry, mango grapefruit. Um, not a huge grapefruit fan, but uh, it's definitely smooth and goes down easy. Um, it's the alcohol by volume here. No, good, good, good selection uh, for tonight. Um, and before we move on to the first topic, um, guys, as always, check us out on our social media. We've been really upping the posting on the, on the Facebook page. We're at Sideline Casters on both Facebook and Twitter. I've seen some some good banter going on back and forth between some of our loyal uh, listeners this past week. And uh, you know, we're recording this during the 2021 NFL Draft. Um, so I'm sure there will be plenty of discussion um, on the Facebook page this coming week based on uh, what we've seen tonight so far. Um, Certainly. Let's take it Let's take it over to the first topic of the, uh, the evening, starting on the hardwood. Um, earlier this month, the Golden State Warriors were four games under 500 and in danger of missing the playoffs for the second straight season. Now following their 117 to 113 win over the Sacramento Kings on Sunday night, the record has increased to 31 and 30, and they are now tied for ninth in the Western Conference. Steph Curry scored 37 points to lift Golden State past the Kings, including seven three-pointers on 14 tries. More importantly, the seven three-pointers set a new NBA record for most threes in a month with 85. The previous record was held by James Harden, who recorded 82 three-pointers in 2019. Not only has Curry broken the record for the most three-pointers in a month, but he achieved two other milestones in the month of April. On April 12th, Curry surpassed Wilt Chamberlain to become the Warriors' all-time leading scorer, and from March 29th to April 19th, Curry became the first player in NBA history who, at age 33 or older, scored 30 or more points in 11 straight games. Logan, in your opinion, is Steph Curry the best point guard in NBA history? I'm not going to go quite that far. He's, he's not the greatest point guard, but he's probably the greatest shooter ever, at least in our generation. Uh, and his shooting prowess definitely kind of keeps him in that 
conversation of all-time great point guards. Uh, but when I think of like the prototypical point guard, I'm thinking of someone who you know, knows how to be a floor general, someone who's a facilitator for others, someone like Magic, someone like Isaiah Thomas, or you know, modern-day Chris Paul, who just passed Magic on the all-time assist leaderboard. Uh, there's a difference between being a great shooter and having a profound impact on, on the game. Uh, and certainly, you know, Curry has an impact on the game that's undeniable. He's one of maybe three or four of like the most influential players at, at point guard uh, ever. He, he, he's the, the way the game is played today is largely in result to his game and his shooting. Only a handful of guys can ever come along and, and change the game like he has. Uh, but I think Magic is still the GOAT point guard. Um, if we look at Steph and Magic in the context of their own league when they played, in today's game, Steph is no better than Magic was in his day. Magic was a consistent top three player year in and year out. A lot of the times he was the best player in the league. Uh, and you definitely can't say the same for Steph. He's certainly a great player, but he's not the greatest, maybe not even top three all-around players. Uh, you know, my other knock on Steph is that in, in too many finals, he's not been himself. We, we've seen this, we haven't seen the Steph from the regular season show up in the finals. Yeah, no, I think I'm on the same page as you on this one. I mean, like you said, the NBA evolves into several um, different eras, and of course, we're in the the shooting era. Um, it seems like teams are scoring more and more points um, as each year goes on. Defenses become a second uh, second fiddle to the offensive side of the game. But when I think of you know top point guards of all time, again, yes, you know Magic, of course, is up there. But then I think we have to think about what kind of point guards are we talking about? I mean, you have Steve Nash's, you have Jason Kidd, Chris Paul. You know these. Um, guys who are looking for assists, looking to be that floor general. And I agree with you 100%. Steph Curry is probably one of the best shooters that we've ever seen from any position. Um, certainly the best shooting point guard, I would say, probably throughout history. Um, you know, he could very well break the the three point record uh, set currently by Ray Allen by the time that his career is over. You know, he's definitely a highlight type point guard who's going to give you these crazy ball handling, escape trouble, heave up a three-point shot that goes in that nobody would have thought would ever go in type of players. So I think, you know, is he one of the best point guards of all time? He's probably in the top top 10, maybe encroaching on the top five. Um, but I think it's a little early to say that he's the best point guard in NBA history. Um, I would definitely make the distinction like you did that he's probably the best shooting point guard of all time. Um, but I think that position means a lot more than just shooting, um, you know, as I already mentioned. So I, for for argument's sake, I would probably say, you know, Magic, Jason Kidd, uh, Chris Ball um, of today's generation, probably still above him uh, when it comes to the list of greatest point guards of all time. Yeah. I mean, you got to recognize the impact of, of the shooting three-point shot in today's game. Oh, yeah. Um, I saw a stat and I saved. Uh, so, 1979, 1980 season, there were over just over 5,000 three point shots. In the 2017, 2018 season, there was 71,000. So, you're talking about 
thousand more three point shots in in this modern era. So certainly, being a good shooter has a big impact on the game. Um, but I still right. think that that floor general, that extension of a a coach on the floor is infinitely more value valuable at that point guard position. Hundred percent. So we'll switch over to another Wilt Chamberlain record. Uh, with only 11 games left in the season, the Washington Wizards have been making their push to secure one of the last spots in the NFL post or NBA postseason. In the month of April, the Wizards have gone from 10 have gone 10 and five, and prior to Monday's loss, had won eight in a row, which helped put the the Wizards into the last play-in spot. During the playoff push, Russell Westbrook has put up an impressive stat line, posting 12 triple doubles in the month of April alone which broke Wilt Chamberlain's 1968 record for the most triple-doubles in a single month. Although Washington has been playing well and Westbrook is averaging a triple-double for the season, he is still receiving a lot of criticism, being called a selfish player and a stat patter. Westbrook responded to the criticism saying, Honestly, I believe there is no player like myself, and if people want to take that for granted, sorry for them. I honestly make sure I impact the game in many ways every night, defending, rebound, passing, Whatever my team needs for me to win, what uh, that—that's what I do. Honestly, I don't care what people think about it. Is the criticism of Westbrook warranted, Brian? I mean, I don't know how. I think the, the argument itself is kind of silly. If one of the stats that he is getting all these triple doubles in include include assists um you know i don't know if what russell westbrook's my favorite player in terms of um you know attitude um he's had his fair share of you know criticism when it comes to his attitude on and off the floor especially with happened what happened down in oklahoma city but to me he's always been somebody who plays really hard um i had the chance to actually see him play orlando about two weeks ago and that guy's all over the, the, the floor. I mean, to get a triple-double, you have to be doing something. And to be f- you know fair to Washington, him and Bradley Beal are the two best players on that team. So, mm-hmm. I mean, who else, is, who else are you going to give the ball to? I don't know. You know, does anybody ever say LeBron's shel- selfish? And he almost averages a triple-double, right? So, I don't know what it is about Westbrook that, he gets so much slack or hate on his game. But if I had him on my team, I'd want the offense ran through him just like Washington's doing right now. So I, I don't think that the criticism is warranted. And I think the, the most telling stat would be in their last, you know, 15 games they've pushed and gone 10 and five. And I think he's probably one of the main reasons they've done that. Yeah. There's no doubt that Westbrook is a dynamic talent, but the criticism comes because he's not disciplined. He's not always coachable. Sometimes he's a great player, but he's not always a great teammate. Um, I'm going to say his criticism is warranted and that he is stat stuffing. I think his, his double doubles are legit, are legit, but he's padding his rebound stat. And he knows it too. He mentioned in his response, the first two things he mentioned were defending and rebounds. So he's aware of what he's doing. It's a conscious decision. Uh, but it's because of his lack of defense that's leading to his rebounds. Westbrook has contested a grand total of only 160 field goals 
the entire season, which ranks dead last in the league for contested shots among players who are averaging 30 or more minutes a game. Uh, he doesn't just lead this stat. He's like way ahead of everybody else. Uh, in fact, it's kind of hilarious that the only two players who have contested less three-point shots from him are Rudy Gobert and Whiteside. These are big men, centers. You know, These are the only two guys in the whole league who play significant minutes who have contested less three-pointers. I mean, he's a point guard. Westbrook doesn't play defense. He doesn't defend shots. And because of that, he cheats in and gets rebounds to pad his stats. It's a conscious decision. You know, he's not just like, oh, hey, I'm close to a triple-double this game. I'm going to back off and just kind of, you know, get that stat, which I'm, uh, players do. You know, but he is so far ahead of everybody else in, this, in that metric that it's a conscious decision. And I know where it comes from. It comes from money. NBA players, like any other sport, like unlike any other sport, depend on stats during contract negotiations. So he's, he's just going to make his money. Uh, but, you know, triple doubles don't win championship. Defense wins championships. If he wants to win a championship, he's got to sacrifice his stats and, and play a little bit more defense. Well, we'll agree to disagree on that one. But uh, moving to the uh, the diamond here, um, the Atlanta Braves had a tough Sunday. The Arizona Diamondbacks swept them in a doubleheader. Normally, an April doubleheader sweep wouldn't make the podcast, but we were bringing it up because of the fashion of which it happened. So the doubleheader started with Arizona's um, Zach Gallon tossing a one-hitter to shut out the Braves in the opener 5-0. In the second game, Diamondback, Diamondbacks pitcher Madison Bumgarner threw a seven-inning no-hitter and led the D-backs to a 7-0 win over the Atlanta Braves. Um, and the doubleheader sweep. Bumgarner struck out seven, and the only Braves batter who re- reached base against him came uh, on shortstop Nicomod's throwing error in the second inning. However, Bumgarner's achievement won't go into the official list of no-hitters. MLB's Committee on Statistical Accuracy decided in 1991 that a no-hitter was a game of nine or more innings that ended with no hits. The MLB's decision to not recognize Bumgarner's no-hitter has split baseball community. Logan, where do you stand on uh, whether it should be a no-hitter or not? Baseball's got some of the dumbest rules and, you know, old time, like stand firm. This is the game. This is how it's played. Bumgarner had a fantastic game. He went all seven innings, threw seven strikeouts, complete game, doesn't get credit for it. He does get credit for a complete game and a shutout, though. So with COVID and doubleheaders, they moved it from nine innings to seven innings. This was a decision by baseball. Baseball made this decision. Now it's stupid that they won't recognize the fact that it's a complete game no-hitter. I know that two innings are left on a traditional game and that a lot can happen. But even looking at this game, the, the Braves had one hit in two games in, in you know 16 innings. It wasn't likely they were going to get a, another hit. But even if that's the case, and, and it's a single game, or it's a game where it's a little bit more competitive in the first one, and the second game just gets out of hand, he threw a no. He couldn't go longer. It, it wasn't like it was a rain delay and the game got cut short. It wasn't like there was something outside of the game. The game was scheduled to end at seven innings. There's nothing he could do. This is a complete game. No hitter. I don't know. Um. So. It's a weird situation, but 
I think part of the problem is because, like you said, baseball has such weird rules. I mean, the rule has been for 100 years, you know, that a no-hitter is nine innings or more. Um, so I understand where they're coming from. Obviously, Bumgarner, um, you know, pitched amazing. You know, to go seven innings alone with no, with no hits is amazing. Amazing feat in its in its own right. So, um, you know, I'm sure fans and especially Bra- or I'm sorry, um, Diamondback fans are going to, you know, make the argument that he should be credited for a no hitter, but. I think in the history, you got a hundred years of people that have thrown no hitters. They've all had to do so at, for a full nine inning game. Um, I think they have just as much of an argument that for somebody who had six more outs to gain, anything could have happened in those six out. Yeah, it sucks that it was outside of his control that the game didn't finish. But you know, the rule's the rule. If the rule was something that's only been around for a couple of years, I'd say it's stupid. But I mean, this is how they've been doing baseball for a hundred plus years. So he needs to get over it pitch the next game and if he's that good do it next time <laughs> i mean bump garner is definitely one that doesn't oh, yeah. need a no hitter he's a great oh, yeah. a great record you know but th- this was a decision by nba uh, by mlb to uh, i'll get the the sport right eventually um to to make this decision to make it seven innings they should have updated their their uh stats accordingly but staying on the diamond last year the rival of the Corona pandemic shut down spring training and delayed opening day of Major League Baseball, which led to teams playing only 60 games that season. Although Major League Baseball isn't free of the coronavirus, at almost one month into the season, there's been very few delays or rescheduled games. And after almost 124,000 tests, there have only been 39 positive cases, 23 of which have been players. That's a positivity rate of only 0.06%. What do you attribute to the baseball success this season? And do you see them playing out a full season of 162 games? Well, it's a non-contact sport, right? It's a non-contact sport that's played outdoors um, for the most part, unless you're in a couple select stadiums across the league. Um, I know a lot of teams have implemented um, measures where they're utilizing some of the stands to expand the dugout. Um, which we've seen, you know, on TV broadcast. I think they they just play the one sport of the four major sports where it's the easiest not to be near anybody. So, um, you know, the closest they're really getting to anybody is tennis. If, huh? Closest game is what tennis? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I what I was saying was, you know, the closest you're getting to any other player. In, in baseball is when you go up to hit, right? So you got the the catcher and the ump there. So um, I just think the nature of the game is what's helping them get this low rate. I do think that they play out all 162 games, especially with the vaccination rolling out um, across the country. Um, and I think that pretty much sums up why they're having that much success. It's not basketball, football, or hockey where you are required throughout the game to actually touch other players. So, Yeah, and baseball certainly did a about-face this year, and the season has gone much smoother than last season. Um, I'm going to attribute the success to the arrival of the vaccine. For the, fa- for the past few weeks, teams and their players have been 
confronted with the choice of whether to get vaccinated, and MLB has incentivized uh, the league by promising to loosen restrictions if 85% of the team's players and staff get the shot. You know, baseball, you know, hasn't said exactly how many teams have reached that threshold, but it's kind of been reported that about 10 of the 30 teams are currently there. Teams like St. Louis and Chicago, the White Sox, um, the Yankees are apparently close. They're just kind of waiting for the guys to get their second shot, and then they'll be in there. Um, but with a third of the league already vaccinated, and I expect that number to continue to climb, I see no reason why baseball can't complete a full season. Like you said, it's a non-contact sport that's played majority outside. So they should have little setbacks for the rest of the season. I'm sure they'll have you know, a certain flare ups pop up here and there, but uh, I think that they're going to see a good shift. And I see certain teams in other sports may have that same kind of success if they get vaccinated as well. No, for sure. I agree. Um, so moving on to the bread and butter. It's back to the NFL. Um, as I said at the top of the podcast, we are sitting here in the midst of the first round of the NFL draft um, taking place right now as we record this podcast. Um, and leading up to the draft, the Atlanta Falcons have been fielding a lot of phone calls from other teams. While the majority of these calls circle around their number three draft spot, Falcons general manager Terry Fontenot uh, told the local Fox affiliate that they were open to hearing trade offers for star wide receiver Julio Jones. While his response was broad, um, GM um, said we are in a difficult cap situation. That's just a circumstance, and it's not a surprise uh, for us. So when teams call about any players, that we have, we have to listen, and we have to weigh it, and we have to determine what's best for the organization. Jones is Atlanta's all-time leader in catches, yards, um, and his 60 touchdowns rank him second behind Roddy White. Jones has played his entire career in Atlanta since being the number six overall pick in the 2011 NFL draft when the Falcons used five picks to trade up from number 27 to take him. So, Logan, with Atlanta in serious cap trouble, should they be looking to move Julio Jones? The Falcons would be nuts not to listen to offers for Julio. After all, he's 32 years old. He plays a position where age does matter. Uh, this doesn't mean that I think that they'll trade him. I'd actually be shocked if they do trade him. Let's face it, I don't think they'd ever get the appropriate value in exchange for him. They might get like a, a two or three pick situation, but you're probably going to have a tough time landing like that prime early in the round one pick. Uh, the only clubs that would be kind of be willing to pay for that draft capital for a 32-year-old receiver would be a Super Bowl boomer bust team. Uh, you know, and the trade would probably only get them a, a late first-round pick at that. So even if you found a team that gave you that first, you know, handful of picks in the first round, it wouldn't be in this year's draft. Because, A, the draft's going on right now, but this trade can't happen for cap reasons until after June 1st. So Atlanta's not in the ready-to-rebuild situation. They have Matty Ice still at quarterback. They have him for the next two seasons. If you're not going to look, go into a full-blown rebuild, there's no reason to get rid of him. Uh, the, the Falcons, you know, based on their draft choices, are serious about winning, uh, and they've got to do that soon. Um, so I can't in good conscience you know, trade the greatest receiver in the franchise history for a couple of picks that may or may not pan out. You know, the worst thing they could do is, is stick with Matt Ryan and trade Julio that would only kind of lessen their chances of them succeeding, which just doesn't make sense. 
you know, it, it's interesting because he's in this weird spot, and you kind of mentioned it. He's 10 years into the league. He's obviously a big cap hit. They haven't really, they made the Super Bowl once. He's obviously an elite receiver, but, you know, he's in that, that period of time where, you know, he's still in his prime, but 30 something year old receivers, unless your name's Larry Fitzgerald, and even he has had production, you know, go down over the years. He's going to start hitting the back end of his career here. Um, you know, we won't talk about what's happening in the draft verbatim here, but how many wide receivers, you know, go in the first round tonight? You know, there's plenty mm-hmm. of wide receivers that have already been taken, you know, leading up to the draft. I mean, Chase, um, Smith, Waddle, I mean, they're all players that are the next Julio Jones, the next, um, you know, Stephon Diggs, uh, the next Cheetah over in Kansas City, right? So, I mean, if Atlanta's not at least listening to offers, they are not doing their team, you know, the the best that they can do, the best service for the team. They need. They have holes to fill. That defense has plenty of holes to fill. So you know they go out. They're obviously staying with Matt Ryan this year. You want to give him as many weapons as possible. But everyone has a price, and if they can fill three, four, even maybe five holes on either the offensive, defensive side of the ball with a decent offer whether it's a combination of draft picks or draft picks and players, or maybe another, you know, a couple of other top level players for him, you know, in an even swap. I think they got to listen and and improve that team. That's a hard division they're in. I know Drew Brees uh, just retired, but I mean, you got the defending Super Bowl champions. If you really want to get the most out of Matty Ice in his last couple of years in the league, you got to give him help and you got to give him help in terms of, putting a team together that's not going to outscore them every game. Yeah, that defense was not helping. Oh, not even close. I mean, I think it's kind of like what we talked about last week with uh, the Browns and OBJ. You you have to listen. You'd be stupid not to. doesn't mean you have to act on anything, but you have to listen. So, well, we'll move on to our our last on-the-clock segment. Uh, in this round, we have the Denver Broncos at number nine and the Dallas Cowboys at the 10th overall pick. There really hasn't been anything solid coming out of the camp uh, up until the draft here from the Denver Broncos. They have a lot of holes to fill. They had offensive line. Defense was certainly a need. Linebacker, the biggest question, of course, up until right before the draft was who they're going to take at quarterback, uh, whether or not it was going to be Drew Locke or somebody else. Brian? Who did you have the Broncos taking at the number nine pick? Yeah, I mean, there's so much that's happened this past week when we were writing this together. You know, I I really thought that Denver was going to be in the in the camp for a quarterback. Um, you know, we're going to talk about this more or less or next week, I'm sure, when we do a little bit of a draft recap. But you know, Teddy Bridgewater makes his way over to Denver, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this to be keep ourselves honest. I'm gonna do this as if. Um, you know, we didn't know what happened. I guess I assume on draft night, um, but I think for them it was cor- it was cornerback or or quarterback, um, and I thought they were going to be a team that was going to be interested in 
um, Trey Lance. So he would have been somebody that would have been up there. Even Mac Jones, if he fell, um, you know, the plan of action that everybody thought was going to happen was that he was going number three. But, uh, you know, I was going quarterback all the way for Denver. They've, of course, filled that need. Um, but I'll stick to uh, what I was going to do before I knew that was happening and say it was either going to be uh, Trey Lance, uh, Mac Jones, or even Justin Fields, depending on where they fell. Yeah, I was in a similar uh, train of thought. Based on their kind of needs, I thought that it was going to be either a quarterback or some kind of defensive player. Um, defensive being either linebacker or corner. Uh, and I think it was going to come down to kind of a need beats value kind of pick here. Um, the new GM, George Patton, had you know expressed confidence in Locke and, and their off-season moves kind of pointed to them not going for a quarterback, of course. Then they went out and got Teddy Bridgewater. Um, so I had them taking a, a linebacker. I thought that uh, Mika um, Parsons was probably the best upgrade for them as an inside linebacker. Uh, he's a great pass rusher on third down. He can play off the ball really well. Probably the best linebacker in the class, but uh, you know, of course, they went uh, different direction. But looking at the Cowboys, the offense for the Cowboys was largely set with Dak Prescott and his arsenal of Ezekiel Elliott, Mari Cooper, C.D. Lamb, Michael Gallup. The defense was a glaring area of need in this roster. Only four teams allowed more points in 2020 than the Cowboys. On defense, the primary needs were cornerback, safety, linebacker. Brian, who did you have them taking at 10 before tonight? I thought they needed help on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, they're pretty stacked on offense. You know, I I thought maybe Devontae Smith was going to fall there, but I didn't know if that was really something that they needed to do in this draft to get another wide receiver. Um, so I was thinking linebacker. We know that Sean Lee re- announced his retirement earlier in the week. Um, so I was thinking somebody along the lines of Micah Parsons, who is the top linebacker. Um, in the draft, at least in rankings from Penn State. Um, I think they need help on the defense side of the ball, especially in the interior um, at linebacker for sure. So he, he's my guy that I would have seen them taking at 10. Um, you know, unless Jerry Jones got crazy and wanted to go offense, but I just I think they need to address their issues, and their issues is, is defense without a doubt. It's funny you mentioned Jerry Jones because there was a rumor that Dallas was trying to trade up to get Kyle Pitts. Uh, so moving up from 10 to four to get him, which probably would have been an overpayment. I don't know. Pitts is one of those guys that breaks the mold. So maybe he would have been worth it, but they probably would have had to pay pretty steeply. I, um, I was going to stick on defense over the past two seasons. They've lost starting cornerbacks to free agency. So, you know, I think they, they took a step last year to replace him with the, when they drafted a, Trayvon Diggs in the second round, but they still need another guy. So I had them taking Patrick Sertain. Uh, the second, uh, the number 10, he would have gave them uh, you know, a shutdown corner. Uh, of course, he wasn't available um, at 10. So, Moving into our who you got, over the past two decades, we've seen the shift in the do-it-all running backs to today's running back by committee. The days of the true workhorse running back guys like LaDainian Thomas and Marshawn Lynch, Adrian Peterson, Frank Gore, are mostly over uh, looking back in the last two decades out of this group of players who you got as the best running back since 2000 it, it's so tough i mean because you know those are just you know 
touching the surface of the great running backs of the, of the 2000s. I mean, Priest Holmes also comes to mind when he was mm-hmm. going back and forth with the Danian Tomlinson for the touchdown record. Um, you know, but if I had to sit back and really think about, you know, who's that one running back who dominated the league and, you know, did it for years on end, I think it's really between two guys. It's probably between LT and Adrian Peterson. I agree. Um, and I think at the end of the day, you know, neither one of them have a Super Bowl ring, so there's not like you can, you know, you know, ch- cut break the tie with 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 the championship argument. I think looking at careers, looking at duration of success and domination. I'd have to go with LaDainian Tomlinson. Good pick. I'm also between AP and LT. Um, these guys are, you know, both just great, great players. Everyone on this list is a great player. Um, there's certainly more that were, were left out, like you said, like Priest Holmes. I'm going to go with AP since we're talking about an individual award. Um, these guys are, are, are so close in, in metrics, you know, both of them being uh, MVPs, you know, multiple time Pro Bowl and, and first and second team. But for me, it's going to be AP just because of him tearing his ACL, having surgery, and then nine months later coming back to win the MVP. That just kind of always kind of stuck out. He was always a guy in fantasy who I looked to get even in, later in his career. I look to get him as a value position, um, so he's he's one of my favorite running backs. So I, LT is a great choice, but I'm gonna go AP. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm really splitting hairs here, or splitting hairs here. You know, it's AP. You know, two thousand plus yard season, two hundred plus yard games. He was electric to watch. I would really wish to have seen him get a little bit more success for a little bit longer in his career. Um, but he's definitely mul- he's still he's still out there he's still playing. Um, you know to what level, of course, is is the question. But he is a veteran presence in any locker room. He's he knows what it means to work hard and be a good running back. You could not go wrong with any of these players on this list. Um, and you know between LT and AP, I mean you you can't really go wrong. Yeah. So that'll and bring. Go LT ahead. He was only you know twenty touchdowns back from the all time rushing leader of Emmett Smith. So yeah, it's it's, it's really hard. It's I just hard. remember watching those. I don't remember the years exactly. I think it was like between oh three and oh seven, probably. I mean, it's it was Priest Holmes and LT. It was yeah. how many touchdowns are they going to score this week and how are they going to do it? And uh, you know that was the hottest story in the league. You know the Chargers were hot, the the Chiefs were hot, and you know that was a. It's funny, it's only 15, 20 years ago, but be talking about running backs carrying teams almost seems like a uh, a weird concept in today's NFL that's become so pass-heavy um, where you're essentially putting a fifth receiver in the backfield. Um, but it was, fun, it was a fun era of football. You had those guys carrying at 30, 35, 40 times a game. You know, Ricky Williams we didn't mention in this list. I yep. thought he was amazing too. Ricky Waters, you know, a little bit earlier on, but um, I mean Henry, as of late, I know he hasn't been around as long as some of the other guys, but he's certainly one that's right up there, right? Him and I would say like the Christian McCaffrey, healthy, 
you know, those are your guys this year. And the thing that separates, you know, LT and Priest Holmes and all those guys, they could catch out of the backfield, but, you know, they weren't going to be the guy that runs up, you know, a, a post, a post route and catches it 50 yards down the field. You know, like some of the running backs you see now, they were workhorses. Like we phrased this topic, they halfback draw, you know, off tackle run. That was what they did, you know, and they, ran down your throat and that's how they won games back then. And it's just completely different now, but it was fun to watch when it lasted. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the, the workhorse back or you prefer the, the running back guy committing where I you mean, have guys like, you know, Chubb and, and hunt in the backfield together? I think, I do think it's good to um, have a running back by committee, but if I had to give you like, what, what would I like to watch? You know, if if I'm just speaking as a fan, I think it's awesome to have a guy that's back there and is like, give me the ball. And you yep. give him the ball 35 times a game. He 100%. says, you need four yards? I'm going to get you four yards. And you 100%. just keep handing him the ball. That was great football. You don't see that anymore. And I don't know exactly the reasoning because I feel like the game's become safer to an extent. So you would think workhorse backs would last a little bit longer, but we've seen the opposite happen. So. Yeah, so we'll move on to this day in sports history. On this day in 1967, Muhammad Ali refused to be inducted into the U.S. Army because of his ejection to the Vietnam War. He was stripped of his heavyweight title and would not fight again until 1970. So that wraps up our, our show for this week. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back next week with an all-new Sideline Sportscast. Don't forget to check us out on our socials at Sideline Sportscasters on both Facebook and Twitter. See you guys next time.